Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club, and we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are so pleased to welcome Dr. Marisi Narad, who lives in Seattle, Washington. For Marisi, who was born and raised in Germany, discovering the world has been her goal since childhood. And now at age 73, she's traveled worldwide to six continents and plans to do more. Studying doctoral education has been her professional passport for travel, for groundbreaking research on the careers of women who acquire PhDs and for leading internationally focused research centers. In 2002, she co-founded and then directed the Center for Innovation in Research and Graduate Education at the University of Washington. This center was an extension of Maurice's engagement in the women's movement that began in the 1960s while she was still living in Germany. Maurice retired from the University of Washington in 2019 and in her new phase in life, she continues to coordinate international conferences, host webinars, advise international doctoral students, and consult with other leaders in higher education. As a strong feminist, Marisi says, widening access for women, and especially international women, to leadership positions worldwide remains a goal for which I will never feel too old. So welcome, Marisi, to Women Over 70. We're really happy to be talking with you today. Marisi, throughout your career, you've woven pretty powerful strands into your research and leadership. And I I was going to try to name those in my introduction of you. And then I thought, no, wait, who's, who's better to explain those strands than you? So could you do that and, and give us a sense of how they interconnect for you? Yes, well, there are, as you really nicely said, three big strands for sure. One is traveling, but that means the experiencing the miracles of the world, both the physical wonders as well the cultures and understanding others. There are so many, there are so many different than me, my environment, and so on. And second is learning learning about past, present, future, that means education, and using education to leave home and learning in this way by leaving home. And third is really connecting with people everywhere, specifically women. And for women working on our rights, 
their rights and understanding and supporting the complex lives of women. And now for me, it's the next generation's life. Mm -hmm. So three big strengths. Thank you. Um, and so what got you started on this, this path? Well, <laughs> I love discovering the world was always a goal of mine from childhood on. And there are family stories who telling that as a five-year-old, when they asked me what I want to become, I said, I want to become a train conductor because <laughs> with trains, I can travel. So, you know, I had at that time only a new trains. We had no car. So this, the desire to venture out in the world was really ignited at home. And as a child, I noticed that we spoke differently than my friends down the block or in the school. And that was, we didn't speak a Bavarian dialect. After World War II, my parents were refugees from Bohemia, which was formerly a province of the Habsburg Austrian Empire and then part of Czechoslovakia and now much of the Czech Republic. So then after World War, the end of the war, really they settled in Bavaria, one of the German, West German at that time, uh, federal states. And although my, germ my parents are or were German, for our neighbors, we were the backpack Germans. That means mm -hmm. we were those who just came with a backpack. More mm -hmm. we wouldn't allow because we were fled and were refugees. Mm -hmm. And they were always a bit suspicious, you know, would they steal, would they do something? Mm -hmm. Because we were helped with food and housing by the local church. So I always, who are these others? Why do we have different names for vegetables? Why do we eat differently? So I really fell from early on to explore that. So with this in mind, I tried early on all kinds of opportunity to get out. I signed up to be a camp counselor for um, underprivileged children in Germany and France. And here I would say, which really become one of my leitmotif, is after World War II, the first German chancellor, maybe you know, Konrad Adenauer and the French President uh, General de Gaulle came up with idea, I mean, I'm sure other people, but then they enacted it, of the German Friends Youth Organization. Mm. So the idea was that really on the local village, from village choir, church choir, to bakery apprentice, to children, to housewife, would exchange one German village with a French village, one mm. German organization, was of nursing, this French nursing, and thus they would get to know each other in, a, in their daily environment and once hostile nations become friends. Mm -hmm. And this really become a key motive in my life. So I then, when I was 17, looking for another chance to get away, I persuaded my parents to let me go and have the senior year in high school, which of course in Germany didn't count, so I had to do another year. But in, in with the American Field Service in a U.S. high school. 
And actually, I was sent to Lubbock, Texas. And I did that by calculating that if I'm a year away from home, my parents would save money. And I put in what I would get for Christmas, for birthday. I said, I need nothing of that. So that's how I spent a year in Texas, which was really very special. Mm. And so and you were in Texas and then you went back to, to Germany. And then I went back to Germany and had one more year, two more years actually, and to finish with the German Abitur. And then because also of this American Field Service year, I wanted to do something internationally and inquiring about it. I didn't want to study law. So it was becoming a high school teacher or a teacher and then would work in a German school. And for that, I needed to study at the university. And I thought I opted for two fields, political science and physical education. And really as a child born after the Second World War, I grew up with the slogan, never again war, no, nie wieder Krieg. And so this was as a post-war generation, the other slogan was, nie wieder fascismus, never again fascism. And mm -hmm. so I was really hoped that studying political science would provide me the tools to understand as much as possible about the past and how the past shapes the present, you know, and then go forward to the future. And I was a good skier and a rock climber. So physical education was fun. And actually this way also, I became a ski instructor. When did you get involved in the women's movement then? Then really that was a key and that was during my German university study the women's movement came and I was very active and frequented the local women's center, which sprang up like mushrooms all over Germany. And at that time we um, discussed, you know, in consciousness raising group, which was new, that's kind of method about women's health, about women's sexuality, about birth control, Abortion was still not legal in Germany, so we helped women to get to the Netherlands where it was legal. And um, so I then learned also, wow, in the US, they have something like women's studies in the university. So I thought, how did the women's movement, which I only knew from outside, manage to get into the university? And I thought, that is what I want to study, and I want to study it in Berkeley. Of course, Berkeley was known as a, as a good progressive university in Germany. And I thought I combined it with really understanding higher education, how universities and higher education function, because these were both subjects, women's studies and higher education, which didn't exist in Germany at the time. Oh, oh. So my goal was far, not at all, to become a professor, not at all. But I thought if I had a PhD as a woman, I would be more heard, and I then could come back and work in the German ministry and change the lives for women and also in the various education sectors. Mm -hmm. So this was how I then moved 
from Germany and the women's movement very much to the US and encountered there the women's movement. And also on the Berkeley campus, which at that time it was in 78, I came in the fall, which was wonderful community of artists, filmmakers, feminists. And so I came to really, I still say my beloved doctoral research, which was, it, and it became published, there's the Academic Kitchen, a social history of gender stratification at the University of California, Berkeley. So I wanted to understand how is it then? Okay, so we have women's studies, but how if that becomes its own department? How does a university as an organization treat an all women's department? Yeah, right. And so that I came upon the home economics. I had no idea what home economics is. It didn't exist in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so I studied the history of the first women who were all scientists. They were chemists. And they, after World War I, were pushed into that study of home economics. And in Berkeley, that existed for nearly 50 years. And so I studied the whole history and how the university treated the department. That's why the subtitle, The Social History of Gender Stratification at the University of Berkeley. And well, I think the other thing which was really important for me was in Berkeley, I got to know my husband who is Indian and he's younger than me. And so I have now three homes, a German home, and a West Coast US home, and somewhat in India. I mean, India is so big, but a little bit I know about Southern India, where he and his family comes from. Wow. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> Wait, I mean, I'm catching my breath here. Um, uh, so what you, what you, if I'm following this, you said that the women, the first women scientists got pushed into home economics. And then home economics is a woman's field. And so there was gender stratification in that field. And then, so did that, where did that lead you? Because I, I know that you've looked at, I mean, your whole, you have such a stunning research career. Where, where did that take you then? Well, that really took me into, um, Trying to, un trying to understand universities' behavior. And when I finished, I actually got my first job and I was there for 15 years in the graduate division at the University of California, Berkeley, which is like in other, they call it the graduate school, the central um, unit, which is responsible for graduate affairs. And um, in there, together with the dean of the then dean of the graduate division, Joseph Cerny, who was a chemist also, uh, and very supportive, we starting to say, "Wow, we um, the 
In the US, you have every 10 years assessment of doctoral education and then universities and programs are ranked, but they're done in a strange way. They're asked the faculty what they know about other departments. And he and I said, you know, we need to really ask the students, and I specifically said, we need to ask the, the women students and the international students and everyone, how do, when they look back, how do they evaluate their doctoral studies and what do they think of it? And so we came to undertake the first US national PhD career path studies asking people and asking about their career paths, how they, when they now have applied what they learned in doctoral studies, how do they evaluate how useful their study were for their life? And what did they do the path from time completion to 10, 12 years later? And in this one, again, I learned how women's life are so unfold quite different than men and also that it's really important to study if you do career path studies and we studied 66 major research universities mm. you really need to do that until at least 10 or 12 years later because women's life and career path is not linear mm -hmm. but very um not smooth and not linear. And then often they're really not doing what um, economists think that everybody wants to pursue the most optimal goal. Well, women think very much about their partners and that they also get a good job afterwards, unlike men, which didn't care that much about. But most of all, we found that the majority of women were actually partnered with someone who also had a PhD, an MD, or a JD, a doctor of jurisprudence, but only one third of the men PhDs had uh, a partner who similarly highly invested in their education. And we had really all kinds of fields from biochemistry, uh, computer science, electrical engineering, mathematics, political science, English, and then later we studied specifically art history as a kind of women's field, we thought, well, and then various social sciences. And so we then thought that really women care very much about what happens also to the partner right after the PhD. And they're not taking always the very opportune and best job because they're concerned about the whole environment and family. And also what we learned, they are the one who take care of the elderly parents. So men far less worry about that. And so we found that um, men therefore tend to be far more geographically mobile because their partners are not that much invested so they can find work more easily than women. And so just going by economic career thinking and rational decision-making, that doesn't work for women. 
So I'm telling, and I told always my doctoral student, I said, as soon as you have a more committed relationship, do, and you're close to finishing, do discuss with your partner, what would you do afterwards? And don't just go and make decisions, whoever earns the higher salary, you go there. Because I could tell them by research that women never can catch up. And there are really other things. What we also found that it's actually not the uh, children and family which derail sometimes women or affect their career. It's really the committed relationship. Mm. And one, everyone thinks it's the women. It, it's the children and the family concerns. And that actually was a very important issue for me to stay with the issue of PhDs and see how does it work out in other countries? How does mm -hmm. how how is women's career there? And go you know, actually, yeah. I was just going to um, say that one of there are you know in terms of the percentage of women in the United States and around the world who ha actually have earned a PhD, it's a small percentage. And I'm wondering, I think you're 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 addressing this, but just kind of like why should we care about this select? few. Right. You are so right um, of asking the question. Um, because many of the women, which are learned through the studies, the three national career path studies, um, which included international students and at early times were relatively few women students, but all of them have become one or the other way, either they or the children leaders and does not need necessarily be in as a professor in the ac academy, but elsewhere. We just could think of now Kamala Harris, whose mother came as an international student to Berkeley and got a PhD in education. And, you know, so now Kamala had a very determined and forceful and, and, and supportive mother. And here she has become quite a visible leader. So it is really for me an issue focusing on those relatively few women that and seeing that they can play a role in questioning systems, systems of injustice all around the world and in seeking to rectify the normalization of injustice wherever they are. So that's why I think I want, I not think, and I'm focusing and have focused on those relatively few women mm -hmm. because of the multiplier leadership position. Mm -hmm. And so um, in your current work now, and you're, I know that you are coordinating international conferences, webinars, you're, um, continue to advise doctoral students is are you really are you focusing with them on this notion of questioning systems of justice is that part of what you're what you're doing yes that's also very much i have um actually i should say right after i um just at the end after i retired I indeed, with colleagues, uh, got funding and we did another international 
conference on doctoral education worldwide. And it was um, called, what did we call it? It's the forces and forms of doctoral education in a newly configured and constrained global context. Because I wanted very much to, or we, not only me, to review the changes in doctoral education worldwide and to see what success and what failures are and pass it on to the next generation. Because I never understood why is there such a difference, not only generally in the world, some have a lot or nearly everything, and some don't even have drinking water, or in higher education, you know, there is the Global North has research labs and everything and instrumentation, and there's just one instrument costs as much as someone in the Global South, you know, an entire department lives from that. So, I really wanted to contribute and that we in doctoral education and the people while they're studying become aware of their privileges and become aware therefore of their responsibility they have because there are so few and they have to, to contribute to that. So that's with a former student of mine, we started to use the new technology and have on our center, on search center, the, um, a global webinar and a global discussion platform where we investigate what it means to do socially just doctoral education. So what he's saying is, you know, unlike normally in academia, where you start with definition and so on, we say, well, this word is now everywhere, but it means probably to everybody something else. So let's invite, and we have done so, invited people from around the world again, and from different disciplines to explain what they do, how does it look like, and what does it mean to them to teach and be and do research around social justice, mm -hmm. doctoral education. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. had from engineering, from the physical science, from city planning, from higher education, art history. So on, so we still continuing that. And I do this with a set of former doctoral students, Roxana, who is originally from Chile. And now she is in South Africa. And through mm. her, I get a whole new uh, education about decolonizing the university. Mm. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I have to write that down, decolonizing. <laughs> oh, there is now a the lot of literature. And the Global South, which is wonderful, are speaking up. Mm -hmm. And so Roxana organizes a whole discussion on that issue. Does this, um, is, is what you're learning together within the international community, uh, are you disseminating that in terms of papers or book or how does that get a wider audience? Okay, so there are several things. One is right now also, um, I think I, I, I told about that international conference on 2019. Um, 
right now we are working on a book manuscript from mm. that. Okay. So we this is too soon, so it will come out next year. Okay. And okay. the topic will be probably towards core values in doctoral education or mm -hmm. core because in 2009, I, I have done since two or five, every other year, an international uh, workshop for one week and created a network of experts and in doctoral education and mm -hmm. doctoral students and postdocs around that. And so our first book was towards a global PhD question mark. And we had mm. what's happening in different countries. And at that time, I thought we will converge. You know, most mm. will converge maybe to a US system of structure. And that's not the case. And what I'm saying now, and now I really fully understand it, um, we have all different histories of higher education system. And the higher education system, and that's where the decolonizing comes in, really was also a colonizer. When you think the British, also somewhat German, the Global North brought their educational system, you know, to South Africa, to mm -hmm. Africa, to mm -hmm. India. And now, which I think is great, the young people are speaking up and saying, we have our own culture. We not just want to read from the Global North. Mm -hmm. So oh, that's really exciting. That's yeah, very so that's exciting. The decolonizing. I'd like to ask a question, Marisi. Yeah. Uh, yes. In so, uh, in in terms of social justice, in terms of women, in in terms of their their um, women who are receiving their PhDs, and then in and then what what what's the practical side of this for women? in postdoctoral studies or careers? Well, what I practical side is really in doing their study that they use their study and get confidence, but also use their studies to get to know themselves and to get to know country. Through my own experience, but now I know also through research, we really know that one of the good ways of uh, studying and getting to know oneself is really to go elsewhere because then everything is different. Um, you, you start questioning your own norms, your own way, how are you doing it? And you get to know your own country better. So I really want that encourage them many to do it, but use this time to self-reflect and use this time for leadership afterwards, not just doing only the study, but use it because life afterwards goes so fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and well said, <laughs> well said. Thank you, Gail, that was a wonderful question. And um, so Maurice, in just a couple minutes we have left, um, what matters to you now, I mean, outside of your professional life? Obviously you're still very immersed in your professional activities, but what else as you, but what else really I realize, um, the body also gets older and health and keeping my body fit. And oh, I say often to my friends, you know, I'm glad I'm retired because 
to maintain my body nearly takes half a day now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, you know, having been a PE instructor, so I, I do yoga and Pilates. I mean, in this COVID time, I do it by myself, but I bicycle. I, mean, I live close to one of the small lakes in Seattle, so I bicycle around the lake. And also what I realized, being specifically in COVID time at home, I actually dress up. I mean, I dress not up, I would say, I dress like I would go to work because I feel then I I keep also fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, <laughs> because it's easy with age. I see every cake I eat, you know, I can see it somewhere. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I dress up and have earrings. So I really also aware of my body. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. The, the other things are my two women's group. I have one in Seattle. We started actually to think about retirement and retiring. And we are a weekly support group. We do this online. And actually on Thursday around this time, we start. And we talk about everything, really support. And thanks to Zoom, I have another women's group, my old women's group, which is nearly 40 years old from Berkeley. And this we meet once a month, and this is like a group to be politically engaged and to form mm-hmm. each other. And so last Tuesday was our this month's meeting, and we had agreed to all watch the documentary by Stacey Abram, mm-hmm. all in the fight for democracy. And as usual then here, I mean, yes, we discussed this whole voter suppression but also always discuss, so now what do we do? Is it money to her? Is it what? What can we do locally? Mm -hmm. And so on. Is this an international group? No, this is just Berkeley women. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, they, one, have moved away from Berkeley to her children and grandchildren in Southern California, but everybody else is still in Berkeley. Mm. Mm-hmm. And why would yes. anyone yeah, leave Berkeley except you? you want to watch, yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, one is in Petaluma, North Germany. Mm-hmm. And the other one, very important, is my art class. Again, thanks to Zoom, I, I took art here in a class, but I wasn't, you know, I really didn't have so much time because during work and then I did all these international workshops and was gone a lot. I, I couldn't do a lot of art, which I like. And now I can do and join my Zoom art class again mm. every mm. Tuesday evening. Mm. And, you know, I have this wonderful art teacher who is now 93, Joan, and she just, I, I really love that. And there are three other small big things. One is having a good relationship with my husband. Mm-hmm. because specifically in COVID and <laughs> yes. you know so we're going through being older and I learning about different culture what aging mean and we learn to have lots of good humor and laughter and what helps with that too is I still love to bake German cakes <laughs> because I found is something you have right tangible and everybody loves it. So mm. he and I is used that I normally on weekend bake a cake like my mother did. <laughs> my last, 
important is every other week I, I Zoom with my sister in Germany. Oh. So this is outside. Oh. What a full, rich, contributing life. Yes. Thank you, Marisi, so much for, for taking time to talk with us today. And um, we really, really appreciate hearing uh, parts of your story. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening and wanting to know. Wonderful. Mm, indeed. <laughs> really wonderful. Well, and, and listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.